These are a few selected verses from Psalm 31, and you'll hear the entire psalm in just a few uh, minutes. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, my Lord, faithful God. Have mercy on me, for I am in distress. My eyes are full of sorrow and my body and soul of grief. But you are my Lord. I trust in you. Your times are in my hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. In uh, Catholic churches and many Protestant churches all over the world this week, they'll be reflecting on what is known as the seven last words of Christ. Seven things that we find that Jesus said in his last hours. And they're pretty amazing when you stop and think about them. Like, think about this one. He says after they have beaten him within inches of his life, and they have nailed him to a tree, the pain excruciating. He's been deserted by those who loved him, betrayed by one of his disciples. And yet Jesus says this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's amazing. In my best moments, I probably would have said something like, where'd everybody go? And in my worst moments, I might have yelled out at them, you've got 72 hours and I'm coming back for you. And then this, there are criminals on either side of him who are being crucified and one is reviling him. Then the other one finally says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In my better moments, I probably would have said, well, it's about time you found out who I was. And in my worst moments, I might have answered his request with a, I don't think so. And then there's this, Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, I think I could have done that one. You know, when it's at the end and you've exhausted all of your resources and and you have no hope, you have no energy, it's out of your control, maybe at that point you say, all right, God, kick in. It's up to you. I could have done that, I think. You know how they say there are no atheists in foxholes. I suspect there are no atheists at executions either. And yet, when you look at Jesus' life, you see somebody who wasn't just this way at his death, but I think all throughout his life, he lived a life of amazing trust and confidence in God the Father. Uh, Dallas Willard once said that Jesus acted as if the universe was a perfectly safe place in which to live. That no matter what would happen, it would be okay. And he was with the Father. I have to believe that the only way you can say, Father, forgive, or, yes, today you'll be with me in paradise, that I think the only way you can say those kinds of things are not because you became magnanimous on your deathbed, but because that's the way you lived your entire life, a life of trust. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to have that kind of trust, that kind of assurance. I'd like to know that on good days and bad days, Days of illness and days of health. Days when my brackets look good and days when they're busted. I'd like to be that confident. I'd like to have that trust. 
So what I want to do this morning is just look at these last few words of Jesus and see if there are any hints or clues in these last few words that can help move us to the kind of confidence, the kind of trust that Jesus himself had in the Father. So let's start with this. You probably already knew this, but it took me a while to figure out that when Jesus is praying, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's actually praying the scripture. That the very last words on Jesus' lips are words from the Bible. He is so engrossed in scripture that it, that it fills his life and flows through him even to his death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You probably know that's Psalm 22. It's a different psalm. Into your hands I commit my spirit is what we saw this morning is Psalm 31. His life was so full of scripture that I think it led to a life of trust. Yeah, I'd like to be that way. I remember in 2007, it was my second trip to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And you probably have seen pictures or maybe you've been there. People come up to the wall and they may put a, a prayer in its uh, rocks, but, but they'll touch it and, and, and they'll begin to rock back and forth, the Orthodox Jews and they'll pray. Well, I was in line, and, and I was up soon, so I was a little nervous. So I said to our leader, now, what are they saying when they get up there? And he said, well, they're praying Scripture back to God. Okay, I said, okay. So it's my turn. I put my hands on the wall, and I go completely blank. And I said, now I lay me down to sleep. That was all I could come up with. That was it. The best I could do. Well, Jesus is so infused with Scripture that he's able to give it back to God at every point of his life. And I tend to think that increased his trust. That didn't decrease his trust. But you probably know this, that a number of uh, very devoted Jews, uh, certainly most all rabbis, uh, people like Jesus would have had what we call the Old Testament memorized. And so when they would quote a verse, they weren't just referring to that verse, they were referring to a larger context. And so people who knew it well could actually fill in the blanks and kind of fill in the, uh, the setting. They, when you set a verse, it actually referred to the whole thing. Or even part of a verse re would refer to the whole verse. Uh, later they would call this technique remez, but it wasn't called that in Jesus' day. In other words, I'll give you a few words and you know it so well you'll fill in the rest. Uh, so for example, uh, yesterday a friend of mine who's also a member of a church uh, texted me a picture. It was her uh, twins dressed all in Duke University garb for the basketball game. And so I texted her a response, and I just said this, train up a child in the way they should go. Yeah, you know that one. Proverbs 22, 6, and you finish it, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. And so when Jesus is quoting from Psalm 31, he's actually taking the entire psalm into context. And this psalm is ascribed to King David. And apparently he's surrounded. Apparently he is just about beaten. He's wept. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. The cords of death are around him. And in this moment of great stress is when he utters this psalm. So Jesus is not only, I think, saying, I trust you, God. But, it, but Jesus, I think, is saying, and I'm in a mess here. I'm surrounded. The whole psalm comes into context. And part of the whole psalm, though, is this. If you look at this and other psalms of David, even when he cries out to God, at the same time he will talk about or make a reference, either direct or indirect, to how God has rescued him in the past. And think about that. 
for David. As David speaks this psalm, he's surrounded. He doesn't know how it's going to come out, but this is what he does know. That when he was a child, he was delivered from lions and other wild animals as a shepherd by God. That when he was a child, he was delivered from a nine-foot giant called Goliath by God. Then when he became older, there was a king who was very jealous of him named Saul who spent years trying, chasing him around the country trying to kill him. And he was delivered. And there were these very nasty people called the Philistines who always wanted a piece of him. And God had delivered him from them. So in this psalm, David has trust because when he looks back on his life, he sees how many things God has done for him. So part of my sense is if I want to have the kind of trust that David had or that Jesus had, it's important to get immersed in God's word, but it's also important to immerse myself in gratitude. To When God does something for me and I recognize it, write it down and make a note of it. Because I think a lot of us in our spiritual life are more like, what have you done for me lately, God? And we feel overwhelmed and we think we're drowning because we've forgotten the preservers that God has tossed us in the past. One of the things probably happened this morning when you opened your bulletin is a little slip of paper fell out. And in this little slip of paper, in a few moments, we're going to invite you to write on that slip of paper something for which you are grateful. And then at the close of the service, as you exit in silence this morning, uh, you're invited to place those offerings of gratitude in the basket. Those of you who brought estimate of giving cards, that's also an act of gratitude. They can go in there as well. But it's your way of saying, my experience, God, is you've delivered me in the past. And in this moment, which is uncertain, I want to remember and celebrate what you've done for me. But that doesn't make everything all right. David is still stressed. David still cries out to God because in the short run, he's not really sure how this is going to turn out. It reminds me that we remember as children of God that we don't always see the whole picture. And in our moment, we just see the floodwaters over our head. We see our field of illness creeping through our body or the relationship that's being strained. And we can only see the present. And we don't see too clearly. An analogy that's helpful to me is it's, it's like a tapestry. And when a tapestry is hanging, it makes a beautiful picture. And you can see the picture, but if you got on the underside or the backside of that tapestry, you wouldn't make out the picture at all. It looks almost random. And most of us live our lives on the underside of that tapestry. And what's happening to us or to our family or to our country in the moment, we can't make sense of. In the short run, we just don't see the picture. But David has been through it enough to know that there's a larger picture that he can't see, but that it works out in ways that at the moment he can't understand. Now think about this Friday. As we think about together the crucifixion of Jesus, it's perhaps the darkest moment in human history. The only person who loved everybody, including us, unconditionally. The only person that we never had to imp- impress or persuade at all, who just granted us unconditional love. The only person who lived without fear or guilt and lived a life of love. We crucified. And it looked like sin had won, that death had won, that despair had won, that darkness had won. It was the worst moment in human history. Except it wasn't. And now, years later, we look back on that day and we call it Good Friday. As we get on top and we see the tapestry for what it is, it's different. 
our lives of trust can be built by immersing ourselves in God's story and our story through the Scripture. It can be built by having gratitude. It can be built by remembering that in this moment, as difficult as it is, is not the whole picture. But there's one other thing that you need to know. And that is Psalm 35, just like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Both of these psalms are psalms of lament, which means that the person writing the psalm is pretty upset at the moment. They wonder where God has gone. They wonder why God has not bailed them out. They are calling for God to get off the bench and get into the game. God, I thought you loved me. God, these people are wicked. I'm innocent. God, what's the deal here? And they cry out to God. They cry out to God. And in that sharing of God, their pain and their frustration and their lack of understanding, their trust actually grows. One of the things the Psalms teach us and that Jesus knew himself and practiced on the cross, it's that it's okay to bring your anger to God. It's okay to say, God, why? When? When will this be fixed? And to shake your fist. You are not going to be struck by lightning, I assure you. How do I know? Because I'm still standing here. To shake your fist at God. To, we said it in the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's all the joyful, happy stuff that you wore a tie for today. And it's also the ugly stuff. The stuff that you thought. And the stuff that you just wondered about. When will this be fixed? And all of that comes to the cross when you see Jesus. He's not afraid to let God know his doubt and his pain. Because the fact of the matter is, if you didn't believe or that God cared about you, if you didn't believe that God loved you, you wouldn't bother to yell at God. What difference would it make if God didn't care? You'd be wasting your breath. But because he knows God, because he knows the Father loves him intimately, he can bring the Father his anger and his pain. Daryl Smith saw worship leader in New Heights, and I thought he made a great um, observation, and he actually did it with alliteration. He said, when you look at the Psalms of lament, basically when they cry out in pain, the psalm is saying, the psalmist is saying, I can deal with death, and I can deal with discomfort, but I cannot deal with disconnection. In other words, God, I'd rather die, I'd rather suffer, than break my relationship with you. And so because of that, you bring yourself to God, including all your pain. One of my favorite examples of this comes from the story of Job. Do you remember Job? Job had everything. I mean, everything. And then... Even though he was innocent, everything was taken away. And Job had these three friends who had PhDs in systematic theology. And they came to Job and they said, let me tell you why this is happening. If you will just admit your sin, if you will just do this, if you will make this correction, then God will bless you. But because you are this way, God is cursing you. And Job says, that ain't right. That's not right. And Job says to God, I didn't deserve this. Why is this happening? And in the end of the story, God doesn't vindicate the three friends. God vindicates Job, the one who cried 
and complained. And I love what someone said about it. He said, Job's three friends are like folks that are uh, a married couple where they are married in name only. They sleep in separate rooms. They take separate vacations, but they're still married. But, he said, Job and God are like the married couple in the kitchen throwing dishes at each other. He said they may be throwing dishes, but they're staying in there together in the relationship. Friends, if it's not too offensive, I would tell you Jesus is chunking a few dishes on the cross. Because he knows that's okay. Because he's going to keep the relationship alive no matter what. They can kill me. They can torture me. But I will not let them take away my relationship with you. And with that, he develops the deepest trust of all. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus when I die. But I'm only going to get there if I bring all of my life to God. The good and the bad. The beautiful and the ugly. While I am still alive. 